Welcome to the Music Relish Podcast, episode number 21. My name is Perry. I'm here in the Garden State of New Jersey. And in North Carolina, we have, who are you? Lou Calicchio. And what is the name of North Carolina? What's, what's the state called? Uh, North Carolina. It's the, um, I don't know, it's the beer state. It's the brewery state now. <laughs> and we have, of course, in the Empire State, we have, uh, who do we have down there in the Empire State? Uh, what's up, boys? It's Mark. Mark. On the Empire State. How are you? Feeling good. So we're going to do another yeah. random relish episode today. Cool. For you know why? For 21. And do you know why we're doing it? I do not know. Why are we doing it, Lou? Because the captains of cacophonous claptrap, the <laughs> nattering nabobs of negativism, were also a pusillanimous pack of pipsqueaks perpetuating a pack of preponderous preposterousness. <laughs> can, can I say that again, Lou? <laughs> no. I was riffing, man. I'm riffing. <laughs> so who wants to start with a random subject? I do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I was before we did this uh, this podcast. You and I were talking. I said I'm having a synchronicity week. I'm having synchron uh, synchronicity events, whatever. Yes. Anyway, so the other day I'm driving in our delivery van at work, and this song pops in my head, and I'm singing a song. Oh, wild one, why don't you settle down? It's Bobby Rydell. I'm like, why is wild one in my head? So after my last delivery, I pull into the parking lot in front of our shop. I walk in. I look at my phone. I look at the Yahoo News. Bobby Rydell has died. Mm. Wow. Today. Yeah. today or... uh, it was a couple of days ago. But I was, I was like, wow. But I was singing that song for a good part of my, this little route I was taking. And I'm like, wow. I said, okay, you know, Bobby Rydell. You know, it's an oldies, that's from the oldies channels. But I'm like, it popped in my head. And I walked into work. And yeah, there. And I found it. Well, he died. So I, I thought that was. Kind of interesting, a little yeah, a little premonition or something. You know, a little, a little antenna, a little antennas happening. The, the zitgeist, you know, the whatever's in the air out there. And uh, also, you know, we've been talking last week about early Genesis and Genesis in particular. I've been hearing some old great Genesis album cuts. I know they just finished their their last tour, um, but you know, we've been talking about them for a while, and so just hearing some old cuts, um, it was pretty cool. And that's my little thing. Yeah, I, I recently watched a, a, a documentary on, uh, of the, it was, uh, I don't know, it was some, some anniversary of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and they had the mm. whole band was there. And um, I think I spoke with Mark about this. And, you know, the other guys kept saying, uh, the, who's the, Tony Banks is the keyboard player, right? Yeah. yeah. And who was that, uh, who's uh, Mike Rutherford? M Mike Rutherford, yeah. Tony Banks especially was saying he could not stand that record. And, of course, it's considered now one of their greatest records that they ever made. Hmm. You, know, and, you know, but the reason I think is because Peter Gabriel just took over for that album. And when one guy takes over, it's going to create some bad feelings, I think. You know? It might have been a difficult record to make. Yeah. Um, I, I think that was a difficult period, too. And I mentioned this at live that, and to some extent, the live shows for that tour were suffering because, you know, he was, Gabriel was doing a lot of things on stage where, you know, you got to sing as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's musical theater at that point. It's one thing to stand there and sing. Another thing is, you know, leaping and jumping and kissing and humping and drinking and jumping <laughs> and, and cavorting around with, with a flower in your head. Well, what I found interesting about it is that they recorded that at Headley Grange. A what? Yeah. 
What's that? That's the place where Led Zeppelin recorded and. Uh... Hey Lou, the uh, the drum sound on when the levee breaks was Headley Grange in the main okay. hallway. Yeah, the I big empty house. I thought that was Ian Bronmore or something. No, that was Led Zeppelin three. Okay. With all the acoustic stony stuff, you know. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that, it, it's a great album. Um, uh, Phil Collins' book is hilarious when he talks about that tour. Uh, they were getting annoyed with Peter because as his costumes got bigger, they didn't have the technology to, where do you put the So some of the costumes, they would tape the mic by his ear and it would fall off. There are many shows where, that's why they didn't really put out a live, at, like any live recordings, because half the shows, they would lose uh, Peter's vocals halfway through a song. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, nightmare. That's the whole concept, I suppose, right? Yeah, that, that, that was hard to do in 1974. You know, around that time, too, I remember seeing some videos recently as well that the singers that were using two microphones, to, like two regular microphones, like stuck or taped together. Well, when you, when you see that, usually one is for the recording of the film and the other oh, okay. one is regular microphone. That's when, when you see that. Usually, yeah, the, the second mic is for the sound on the film. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, I think Jerry Garcia... I think Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir did it because the wall of sound was so big that the microphones were feeding back. So they had two mics and it, it horrible vocal sound on any dead any dead shows with the wall of sound. It was a really bad sound, but it worked, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And what I what I realized too is the, who who was the uh, guitar player? The other guitar player, Steve Hackett. Yeah. This guy yeah. came off as such a nice guy. He's just so low key and. They're so British. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of the songs I heard from, uh, actually, I think I heard, might have heard on NPR as an interlude. It was Carpet Crawlers from Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Um, it's, it had to be a remaster. It sounded really good. And I, I heard um, just in random, uh, The Ballad of Big from, and then there were three. That's the, the first album. That's the first album they did after Steve Hackett left. Yeah, that's just Collins, uh, Banks, and, and um, Rutherford. Um, I heard that's Keep It Dark. favorite. That's my personal favorite album of theirs. Is it really? Yeah, because it's uh, dark. Very dark. Uh, 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 was it, and then there were three? Yeah, it was recorded in Sweden during the winter in Abbott's studio. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so you just think of a haunting album. No, And I love the stuff with Steve Hackett, but that album to me, it's just great. Very cool. And uh, I heard uh, Keep It Dark from Abbott Cab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one for the Vine from Wind and Wuthering which was an album I didn't think I knew a whole lot of, but I knew them from a lot of the um, <clears throat> live recordings, uh, like Seconds Out, or I think that was the tour, or the album from that. But um, there's some great songs in that, and it's a stronger album than I thought, actually. Yeah, it's but, a very good album. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you, they went on, post-Gabriel, they went on in their own way, and even their more pop stuff, I, I listened back to some of the older stuff, you can hear the pop in there. There's certain, mm-hmm. you know, they have odd time signatures, you know, and all this, you know, very lush and ornate or- orchestration, but then they have these like grooves. I said that's that could have been the song Abigail. That was something that was very much in Genesis all along. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and it's that phase. I, my favorite phase of theirs was after Gabriel left up to Duke and including Duke because they went re- more progressive. I think musically more progressive than with Gabriel. They really went off. Yeah, I love what they did. And then Duke had to me has the perfect balance of pop and prog and there's gut-wrenching songs on that album with Phil going through his divorce. It's yeah. a great period to listen to them, though. Great period. 
Not my favorite production, as you know. They sound that that and Russia's signal sound like they were on like recorded the same day. I don't know. <laughs> it's just a weird sound to me. Yeah, but the the songs are great though. Behind the lines is just amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, Mark, have you got any subjects you want to throw in there? Well, before I do, uh, Lou, my favorite, actually, my favorite song from Genesis is "Ripples." Are you familiar with that song? Oh yeah, oh, I love that song. It gives me blue, goosebumps. Blue girls come in every size. Yeah. Well. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I just caught that one. Uh, I found out today, I was reading the Times this morning and in the obituary, and if you guys had this on your list, we'll chime in, but Roland White died on Friday. He, you know who Roland White is, don't you? No. Um, he was a pioneer of bluegrass, and uh, he, um, he basically, in a weird way, he paved the way for bands like the Birds to go into country in that he supported them. He, 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 his shows in the early 60s, the birds saw them, among many other artists. He was a key to, in California, to bring in a lot of these bands into a country sound. Very important link in that. Um, and the, the masthead of the obituary in the New York Times, you should read it up, is it's perfect. It says, his openness to ideas and approaches outside traditional bluegrass music was among the hallmarks of his career, which means that when bands like the birds were, tackling country you had a lot of the uh conservative country crew going ah you guys are doing it all wrong roland white was a supporter and him and his brothers and i'm just reading you read his life and he was born in maine so he was really a new englander which is neat yeah. um, but him and his brothers had a band that they eventually called uh uh the kentucky colonels they appeared on the andy griffith show so now i gotta watch every episode of andy griffith to try <laughs> to get some on there um but Oddly enough, his brother, who was in the band, the guitarist, Clarence White, played on Sweethearts oh. of the Rodeo and oh. Younger Than This Day. Yeah. Okay, well, got Clarence White, I mean, he, he's more, more well-known, of course, you know. Yeah, um, but um, I... Roland White. Yeah, Roland White, look him up on, uh, he's on Spotify. His album, I Wasn't Born to Rock and Roll, that was given to me when I was a teenager, and that was like my introduction to bluegrass. And it just, from there on, it was a long, fun journey. But a uh, great, great, great player. I'm living in the land of bluegrass, and funny because I, I never heard of them. I heard of all the other luminaries and stuff, um, but well, and that's very interesting. And like I said, they were probably more eclectic pioneers than maybe traditionalists. Maybe who knows? Yeah, I think you know what it was. He he tried he played traditional bluegrass, but when these younger guys wanted to get into it, he wasn't looking at them as long-haired hippies. He was right. like, yeah, that's that was the key in the late '60s to. Right. Graham Parsons eventually coming around, you know. Some of the more open-minded people, you know, wasn't I guess you know the old guard, you know, the old guard that didn't like Dylan strapping on a Telecaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a little story about Van Morrison. All right, right. Now you know Van Morrison. Uh, um, written a lot of songs. He was uh, Burt Burns. We've spoken about him in the past when we talked about the Brill Building. You know, he had Bang Records. Right. And bang meant for, you know, uh, Bert, Ahmet, Nahu, Nasuhi, and, uh, and, you know, so that was it. But, but, but he signed a, uh, he signed a contract with Bang Records for his solo career. And he recorded, uh, he recorded Brown Eyed Girl. And he won, and he recorded eight songs. And he, the deal was the eight songs. He recorded were going to be used as four singles. 
but Bang put them out as an album called Blowing Your Mind, and they didn't <laughs> consult Van Morrison about it. He only became aware of it when one of his friends mentioned that he bought a copy of your new album, and he was completely unaware of it. And he <laughs> was, needless to say, not happy about it. Was this Van covering the songs of Burt Burns? or No, no, no. This was, this was Van Morrison's record. He recorded eight original songs, which were going to be four singles. He was promised they were going to be on 445s, you know, two, you know, flip A side, B side. But Bang put them out as an album without notifying him that okay. he was going to release an album. So he had a lot of problems with that. But Burt Burns, as, as I mentioned in the past, he died. He had rheumatic fever as a kid and he died. So Van Morrison had a big contract dispute with his widow, Eileen. And the contract dispute prevented him from performing on stage or recording in the New York area. Wow. In the, in the, anything. Yeah. So he moved to Boston. He moved to Boston. Now he had, he had financial issues. He didn't know what to do. Warner Brothers came to the rescue. And this is where, like, he didn't learn a lesson the first time, and he, and he probably didn't learn it this time. It says here, Warner Brothers bought out Morrison's contract with a $20,000 cash transaction, which took place in an abandoned warehouse on 9th Avenue in Manhattan. <laughs> abandoned? That sounds dubious. Yeah. But, <laughs> and, but Warner's told him there's a clause because they bought him out of the contract from Bang. There was a clause. They said, you still owe, you still have to submit 36 songs within a year to the Burns Music music Publishing Company. Wow. So he's like, oh, man. So what he did was, in one day, he recorded 30 songs in one day to try and get him out of this uh, contract dispute. And he was so, it, it was so bad, he recorded it with an out-of-tune guitar. And huh. The, the subject matters were like some ringworm sandwiches and all bunch of <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so but that was the great thing he still owed 36 songs so he recorded 30 songs in one day that he gave to a bang to a bang records and they finally put it out in 2017 it was called the authorized bang collection wow <laughs> but he, it, it was such a bad contract Warner Brothers got him out of it. And uh, Warner Brothers gave him time to record Astral Weeks, which, of course, became uh, a huge record of his. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was the first. Uh, that kind of was his big thing when he first came out with uh, um, Into the Mystic on it. And then, um, yep. Which is enough. Wow. And Moondance. Um, that was a, that was another record. Yeah, that was a different record, but yeah, but he yeah. that but Warner Brothers bailed him out and uh, got him out of the contract. But he still owed thirty six songs. He recorded thirty songs in one day and gave them to him. I thought that was pretty cool. So the, the, that record was released. So it, it's possible you could hear that stuff on YouTube. You you can if if you look up the authorized band collection, then they put it out as like a two record set. So I don't think it's on side four. <laughs> you might hear. Those horrible songs. So, yeah. so Lou, Lou, I'm thinking like we're gonna hear the song "Ringworm." <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was gonna type in "Ringworm," you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Into the ringworm. But I thought that was, he's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> Thirty songs in one day. That's pretty cool.
Yep. Anybody else have any uh, random relish they want to put in there? I do. I was uh, I rewatched the great movie The Right Stuff uh, last week. Oh yeah, and mm. uh, it, it's it, we're talking. It's a it's an amazing cast. Everybody was so great, and I forgot that Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer played. They were like scouts for the uh, for NASA to try to find test pilots and fighter pilots who had the quote unquote aircraft carrier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if they had the right oh, yeah. stuff to become astronauts. Um, so then I, I started thinking. I remember when you see Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks that they play Spirit in the Sky in reality they played the theme from 2001 Space Odyssey and I was thinking well going back to the original uh, and you know Mercury 7 and, and like were there any music played in space prior to that alleged incident so what it was is the um, the first song ever sung in space it was um, you know, actually it was um a Ukrainian song, a, a Ukrainian folk song called Watching the Sky. And it was sung by the uh, cosmonaut. He was a Ukrainian cosmo, cosmonaut, kind of cool, uh, Pavlo Popovich. And he sang it on August 12th, 1962, a week before my first birthday. Um, but he sang a Ukrainian folk song called Watching the Sky. And I guess they, whatever, they broadcast it back in Russia. We probably didn't hear it. But the first song that was ever played in outer space was on uh, Gemini 6A space flight. Commandeered by Wally Shira from Oradell, New Jersey, uh, who played harmonica on Jingle Bells. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Is that a fact? Yep, yep. Wow. Another Jersey boy done good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, he was from Hackensack, Wally Shira. So he was one of the original uh, Mercury 7, played by uh, Lance Henriksen. Mm. The right stuff, yeah. Well, a lot of times they say, you know, he's from Hackensack because the hospital was there. Yeah, well, let's just draw. He lived in Oradell, actually, because my, you know my my first wife was from Oradell, and uh, there's a little plaque somewhere, uh, somewhere along near Kindercamac Road or whatever in New Jersey. People, really? uh, that 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 mentions Wally Shira. So yeah, man, go Jersey. Oh, I'll have to look for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, no, wow, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. What have you got? We know. Can, can I add something? Of course. Sure. I, now, as a kid, I, I, my heroes were a lot of those astronauts. I thought they were so cool. And I remember wanting to be an astronaut. And my father said, you know, Lou, you got to be smart to do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so one time on Perry, remember when you, uh, you, me, Donna, and Corey and the boys were on vacation at Bush Gardens. Sure. I went to that simulator thing. I, I was 10 seconds into it. I'm like, get me out. I'm going to hurl my stuff all over the place. <laughs> oh, yeah. We were at, we were at some, yeah. So, what was it? Like a space simulator or something? Yeah, it was a space simulator. There was a little uh, aeronautical museum that they had there. I was and, smart uh, enough not to go in there. <laughs> well, I, I took Louie I took Louis with me, and I was just, but I know what's moving upside down. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I got the wrong stuff, man. <laughs> Well, Lou, I, I agree with you. My, it's, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut too, and then I found out I had a severe case of claustrophobia. Still do. <laughs> oh, and you see those? I think I, I forget where I was. I was in Houston, and my sister took me to uh, NASA down there, and I got to see one of the capsules that they sit in. Even like with the door open, I didn't want to go in there. It freaked me out. I mean, oh, I just can't man. believe what they did. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. rheumatism. You can't sing in closed rooms. I have rheumatism. <laughs> <laughs> <All> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so, 
So or, anyway, um, or, or a submarine, actually. <laughs> yeah, I did a tour of a submarine in Galveston, Texas. Uh, Galveston's on the shore, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a World War II era sub, and I barely made it out of there. That was another eye-opening experience. Like, mm. holy cow, you know? Yeah. Like, and then when you saw the the big rooms that the 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 big guys on the, <laughs> this is still a closet, you know? <laughs> Amazing. And, and picture it really like far underwater. Yeah. yeah. And they, okay. they remind you that the diesel exhaust would back in. Men had like their faces were full of soot from the. Uh, and I yeah. thought of my, you know, when I was a kid, my father would drive the car uh, with leaded gas and open the back window of the station wagon and the fumes were coming in, what it felt like. I can only imagine what a submarine <laughs> felt like. Oh, you know? God, yeah. <laughs> That's where I got my brain damage from. I can't even snorkel. I'm afraid like a bee or a dragonfly is going to fly into the tube. I mean, I, I got claustrophobic doing that. You, you couldn't, you couldn't yeah. feed me enough. Yeah. When I was a kid, I went down in the submarine. Really? Yeah, at Disneyland. Wow. How did you feel? Did it bother you, or were you okay? Yeah, I was fine, yeah. That's wow. why you're nuts now. Are you oh, kidding? Yep. Perry, you got the bends. Yeah, really. You got the. <laughs> I certainly did. <laughs> you got the bend hey. in the head. <laughs> so listen, uh, monumentous music news this week for me. Pink Floyd dropped a new song. Yeah, I and um, I don't know if you guys have heard it, but it's. I, I, I haven't listened to it yet. It's great. It's very short. It's three minutes and change. It's all it has to be, and of course, it's a, it's for Ukraine. And it's based on a uh, Ukrainian uh, anthem, Oh, the Red Viburnum in the Meadow. And uh, they use a, a Ukrainian singer who was touring in the U.S. when the invasion started and he went back. And uh, he recorded an acapella version of the song on, and he put it out on Instagram. And, and uh, David Gilmore said, can I use this? And he said, sure. But by then he was in the hospital. He had already been injured, you know, in fighting. Um, very powerful. And I'll just leave it at that, that affects the production. It's classic Floyd because he opens it with a Ukrainian choir singing the anthem. Then the Nick Mason and, and David Gilmore come in in the band. But then they have the uh, the singer. I, I'll say his name is Andre. I'm not going to try and pronounce his last name. I'll, I'll mispronounce it. Singing over it. But when Gilmore comes in, he's playing his 1952 Telecaster. It's, wow. just, it's great. Goosebumps. And what I like about it is the immediacy of the song. It definitely sounds like Gilmore called up uh, Nick Mason and said, I'm recording at my house today. You want to come over? It's got a very immediate feel. But for that song, the immediacy of what's going on is perfect. And it's it's ex excellent. I played it. I played it over and over again. You know, Gilmore, when he plays the solos, that's, you know, that's just the trademark of Floyd. It's it's Floyd without waters, of course, but it's Floyd. You know? Well, I asked you this the other day on the phone. I said, you know, if it's for charity, why didn't yeah. they pull Roger Waters? They could have gotten they, They'll never, ever, ever work again. And both of them have said in interviews, it's not going to happen. Uh, a divorced mm -hmm. couple may never be in the same room. And that's really what it was. You know? Wow. They, they, they could have asked him. Maybe Gilmore didn't want to. Maybe he knew he would get a no. There's just such a disconnect between those two uh, i i don't ever see them doing anything together so who's playing bass or who's who's in Pink guy, floyd now 
Guy Pratt, who's played with Floyd since uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason back in 86, when they first reformed without Waters. He's been with the band the whole time. The keyboardist, I'm not sure who it is, but he was like the backup keyboardist to uh, Rick Wright when they were touring. So it's basically, you know, the, the backup, the other the other guys are the backup uh, Floyd band. Yeah. Again, it's a very, like I said, when you hear the, Lou, when you hear the drums on it, you'll be like, it's it's well mic'd, but it it doesn't sound like a Floyd album. It sounds like Nick Mason just that's the feeling I got. He just set up in a room and then boom boom boom, boom you know, and he's just hmm. playing. And it's, it's great. <laughs> but definitely check the song out. Very good. And okay, I also said like it, he said all proceeds are going to uh, Ukraine relief. And yeah, you can buy the MP3 for a dollar fifty, right? I'm like, well, how much money is that going to make? And I'm like, wait a second worldwide that probably sold 20,000 downloads in one day so it will raise a substantial amount of money right but is spotify yeah. gonna keep money from it is apple going to keep money from it or are they going to donate all the proceeds to the well charity? that's that's the key i mean if you're a listener and you support the uk ukraine efforts buy the buy the mp3 download it to computer so at least you know you contributed then when you listen on spotify you know they're not given anything but you know on the other hand um you know, you did your part. You downloaded it. You yeah, you, 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 you. yeah, yep. And uh, I'm old fashioned. I'm looking for a CD, and there's no CD of it. I'm just too old fashioned. <laughs> I, I thought Roger Waters was doing it. I thought it said all the original members. That was probably a rumor. Minus um, Rick Wright. Yeah, yeah. Now Waters will probably do his own thing. I can't see him not with his views on everything. He'll do something. I'm seeing him in August, so it should be an interesting show. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's going to be a family affair. I got my daughter, my son, my daughter's husband, all of us going. Nice. They're cool. You know, I just I saw a couple of clips of the last waltz recently. And I've spoken with Lou about this many times when uh, the the consummate professionals that that they were and how trained they were like uh, when they were uh, when Clapton came on and they were doing further on up the road. And Clapton dropped his guitar. His guitar strap fell off. Yep. And instantly, in a split mm -hmm. second, Robbie knew this, saw it, and he jumped right in with his solo. Yeah. And gave, after his solo, Clapton had recovered and then went into his solo. Like, Robbie, so trained, been doing it since he's 16 years old. He, he saw that right away and just jumped right in there. I think also the fact that when you read about before they went on, they were nervous. You know, not only was it a big concert, it was being filmed like that. Mm. So uh, there was a lot of, um, a lot of what they did, there was a lot of cues, there was a lot of visual things. And <clears throat> I remember reading said, you know, there were moments, they had moments of panic during that whole performance, even with the other performers, that, you know, I think there, there was, their senses were so heightened that, like you said, Robbie probably saw that it, as it was happening, was just ready to go, you know, that kind of thing. And then he just burned, he burned the hell out of the guitar to begin with him once he started playing anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, he, was, he, he played rather well that night. He did, yeah. He was talking, he was talking the solo. <laughs> <laughs> and th that was the stuff that Ronnie Hawkins and Levon said. They thought it was edited to look like he was telling the band what to play, when to play, how to play. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's the old angry stories. I think in, in light of Levon's death, I think a lot of that stuff should be put to rest. And, you know, you, like I said... The, I, I was a member of a, a band appreciation site and I, I quit it because of all the negativity on it. <laughs> and Levon's widow is on it too. And I'm like, I don't want to hear this, you know? Yeah. 
Oh, by the way, I sent you guys a clip the other day of uh, of uh, Ronnie Hawkins the Ho- and the Hawks. Yeah, he's doing the yeah. walk in like 1960. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just say one thing about that performance, that Eric Clapton thing, Perry. Yeah. The first time you see it, you're like, "Oh, whoa! He lost the strap." You can never unsee it. So whenever you watch the movie, you're watching that strap, and you're like, yeah. "It's gonna happen! It's gonna happen! It's gonna happen!" He's got it, and he goes, oh. and then Robbie jumps right in. Yeah, and, he, and he's got that big coke booger in his nose. And the Neil Young both. <laughs> well, no, 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 they all had it. You just didn't see most of it. <laughs> so let me throw something else in there too. Uh, just a quick little thing about the Brill Building. And I remember, mm-hmm. I remember talking a couple of weeks ago about like uh, you know somebody got hung out the window in the Brill Building. <laughs> now apparently it was Sonny Franzis who hung the guy out the window. Mike Michael's father. Yeah. Tell that guy I want to see him. Yeah, and uh, I think it was on I, at a request of Morris Levy, probably. Oh yeah, well, it was Morris Levy. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yep. Now Sonny Francis tried to have his own son killed too. I mean, these guys are. These guys are out there, man. They were. Out there. Well, the other son, the drug addict, uh, yeah. troublesome son, not Michael. No, not not Michael. Yeah, um, but uh, he lived to be an old man. Well, one hundred three. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Wow. Well, but of course he was in jail for forty years or something. That's the place to die. You kidding? Yeah. That's what. That's Whitey Bulger. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but I heard that that was Sonny Franzese, uh, Sonny Franzese, who hung the guy out the window of the Brill Building. I love a good. I love a good game <laughs> for some uh, songwriting royalties or publishing yeah. royalties or something. Uh, what was uh, what was Levy's uh, co-write name like? Um, like Margaret, Margaret or something. It was one word like a Magoo or a Magrid or something. But when um, in the testimony book, when Robbie got their songs written uh, for um, for the Hawk, yeah, it was, it was on Roulette Records. And they were on Roulette had, Records. Yep. Yeah, and he said he had a co-writer, which was Morris Levy. Like, damn, you know. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunately, that was done like uh, it was done that way. Um, I remember seeing, uh, you know, a hell, hell rock and roll Chuck Berry. And, you know, he was saying like, you know, he'd, he'd write the song and there'd be two other names on the song. <laughs> and that's the way it was done with the payola. You know, they would like um, Alan Freed had his name on a few songs. He was a co-writer on a few songs because the payola was, you know, we'll give you a co-writing credit if you spin this record. Yeah, yep. there's a great Sopranos episode about that with Hesh. Hesh, yeah, yeah. The rapper, the son of that guy, comes and uh, wants his money. That was a great episode. How many and stories that, have you heard about Phil Spector pulling guns on people? Like I heard the, uh, I heard <laughs> you know when he was recording with John Lennon, John Lennon would be like, uh, you know, where's the tapes? And Phil would be on the phone like, well, the, the FBI is watching me and. You know, he pulled a gun on the Ramones when he was doing rock and roll radio with them. Or uh, I heard, I heard that the whole rock and roll album, John Lennon, that was supposed to come out earlier, and Phil just took the tapes and disappeared. That was a kind of a weird story. Like Phil, you took John Lennon's tapes. <laughs> that kind of master recordings, yeah, yeah. Guy's a strange guy. And Wait. what came to be was Phil Spector and the Guns, right, Lou? Well, he, he pulled the gun for the last time, you know. Yeah, uh, yep. And, and I mean, I was thinking too, like to die in prison after all he you accomplished, all he accomplished, yep. the yeah. pioneering, playing guitar on uh, on Broadway. That was him playing mm-hmm. guitar. Um, just, just a waste, you know. Like it's just crazy. The LA, Los Angeles is an interesting place, you know. Yeah, you can, I don't you know can parallel him with, with 
Yeah, you could parallel him with Robert Blake. Or if he's mentally ill or what. Well, yeah, I mean, I think he's, who knows at that point, that, that, rare, that rarefied life. I mean, Chuck Berry, you can pay people to poop on a salad bowl that's covering your face. <laughs> <laughs> your every wildest dream is controlled. You wonder. I got, you I wonder. got a few of my own, by the way, and that's why I'm moving. <laughs> you wonder if, if Charles Manson had gotten a record deal, he would have been like a Phil Spector type, probably. He would have been like had his career, but he would have been doing some freaky stuff, too. You know, well, didn't Dennis think. Wilson record uh, a Charles Manson song? Yeah, the Beach yeah. Boys recorded it, but they changed it. And funny enough, I'm reading Quentin Tarantino's novelization of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a great movie. And he kind of fictionalizes what went on between Manson and uh, and the record producers and Dennis Wilson. It's a great chapter in the book. It's it's well worth reading, but it seems very plausible what he's saying, you know. Mm. Uh, no, Bobby Boussoulet in prison actually had you know he, a bit of a music career. You know, he helped musicians and did, uh, programs for people who wanted to play music in prisons. But also, he did some outside work. Um, I can't. I, I don't know who the artists were, but he actually did some outside work and had music published and stuff. I don't know if the victims, you know, got f- families got money or anything in compensation that, but he actually furthered his music ambitions while in prison. Wow. Cool. Uh, any yeah. other random relish you guys want to throw in? Uh, yeah, actually, Perry, you mentioned something um, a couple of weeks ago on a, a different podcast that you went. In your car, you had the radio on. You had a Grateful Dead song going. And I think you said you went in, you did, went to the post office, it came back on, it was still in radio, you went shopping. I 10 miles and the song was still on. <laughs> yeah, you, you got, went to the car wash, the whole thing, right? Yes. <laughs> so yesterday, I'm driving my car, and I got, you know, I have the XM channel, Deep Tracks is, they play some, you know, obscure album tracks. So a song came on by a band called Caravan. Oh, yeah. And Mark, well, this thing went on forever. And I went into angles, I did all kinds of shit. And it was still on the friggin' radio. It was 22 minutes and 43 seconds long. <laughs> you know, Lou, that's that's longer. That's longer than close to the edge. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a bad song. I mean, it was. I think I'm, I'm thinking. I'm like, it's like jazzy Prague. That's what I got out of it. Um, yeah. So I, I ended up looking it up, you know, because we've been talking about Prague a lot lately, and um, certain other people involved in, in the genre. So the song is called Nine Feet Underground" by this band called Caravan. They were obviously an English band because they sound so English, yeah. um, but they were part of what they called the Canterbury scene. Um, mm-hmm. that, and, you know, that was um, Canterbury, you know, it's the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer. Um, mm-hmm. And um, but that scene, there was another band called the Soft Machine that, yes. that were from there. And, uh, and you know, they had various lineups, but a- Andy Summers in 1968, Andy Summers of the Police was the guitar player for that band for a while. But um, Soft Machine? Heard of, yeah. Yeah, wow. so, but the Canterbury scene is described as jazzy, pro, uh, jazz prog, English folk, improv with some psychedelia. And I read that, and I, um, it's a quote here that said, the complicated harmonies, improv, and a sincere to desire to write catchy pop songs. So when I'm listening to this, this suite of songs, I'm, said, I'm, I'm hearing that straight ahead. It, said, it sounds like Genesis when they're trying to, Genesis before they were the pop band that they became. So there's, I was mentioning earlier that like Genesis had that thread in their sound. Going back to the early days, they just made it. They just took their pop thing and just distilled it to you know near perfection. Yeah. Um, but you know th- these things are there. There's a lot of improv, a lot of instrumentation. But 
I noticed that, you know, they were, they were supposed to be successful, but they never really got to that level. But all the remixing is being done by Steven Wilson, who we were, ta- yeah. you were talking about last week. Yeah. So, again, he's all over that stuff. And uh, one of the guys in Caravan was a member of Camel. But um, they were known for, these are some interesting album titles. They're known for their album titles, rather cheeky with the sexuality. Um, so the first album, the first album didn't have a sexy title. A Caravan album number two was called, If I Could Do It All Over Again, I'd Do It All Over You. <laughs> yeah, and a prog nerd making that title, you know. Yes, yes. Um, their third album is called In the Land of Gray and Pink. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the fourth record, I don't I can't have a name for it. Uh, the fifth record was called For Girls Who Grow Plump in the Night. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark. <laughs> And number still, actually, no, wait, wait. In, in relation to, um, I'm wait, 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 for girls who grow plump in the night, they played the 10th Plumpton Festival. <laughs> <laughs> no, Plumpton is a real town in Essex. I thought it was like, I said, is this for like plump girls? This is getting weird, you know? Um, now, their sixth album, listen to this album title. It's called Cunning Stunts, <laughs> which is called a spoonerism for. Stunning, and you know the rest, but I'm not going to say because you know that goes out in the air. Um, so I'm like, wow, but you know, the, the material wasn't lurid, it wasn't you know, like you know, a gasmatron or anything like that. Um, it was very British, the, the titles are hysterical. Um, I think they're just having fun, you know, with the they title, were, they were having fun, you know, and also <laughs> it was the time it was. Um, but I, I, I'm trying to find out, like, you know, I, since it was a suite of songs, the whole Nine Foot Underground, it was uh, the, the songs were like A through H, so it's. One song is Nigel Blows a Tune, Loves a Friend, Make It 76, Dance of the Seven Paper Hankies. Um, my favorite is Hold Granddad by the Nose. <laughs> um, and then Honest I Did, Disassociation, and the last part of the suite was 100 Proof. And I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, the whole thing, how it ties in with uh, Stephen Wilson that we were talking about, you know, he's this... Hey, he's this remix master, and and I never heard of him until you mentioned him. Uh, so interesting. And you know when he's remix again, like I said, when he's remix remixing those albums, he's literally going bar by bar with the original album. He's right. making sure all the levels of every instrument is the same, so he doesn't change it. Because once you raise a guitar, it changes the whole listening. Like it changes it. But what he wants is for all those instruments to come through, all those tracks to come through modern equipment, which does an amazing job of cleaning everything up. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I like about his remixes. Cool. Well, yeah. uh, some of the <clears throat> maybe I've heard some that he's done because I'm hearing some of this older prog stuff, and I'm like, it sounds like clearer than I would imagine it to. So he's he's done the whole <clears throat> Jethro Tull catalog. The the uh, Aqualong for all its popularity is really a crappy sounding album. It had when CDs first came out, it was considered one of the worst CDs because it has hiss on it. He tackled the hiss mm-hmm. and um, pitch kind of varied on some songs. And uh, just, it was not recorded in a good studio. It's it's a, sad to think of it, but he, he did a great job on it. And uh, just everything's a little more clear and punchy. The bass has a little more presence. Like it's all, it's all good. I, I, that's what I like. I like to hear, I don't need it to sound new but I don't want it to sound messy. So hmm. what he did, with, like, again, if you could track down Chicago too, I just listen to it online. You will hear a difference because it sounded like crap to begin with. You know? What songs are on Chicago too that I would, we would know? Um, 
It's got oh Jesus, you know, you're catching me. It's got a lot of songs, you know. Okay. It's got a ton of songs. It had um um oh geez. Why do you do this to me? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. No, I'm it's it's like your trap, pal. <laughs> no, it's got a lot of good songs. It's got that sweet um uh I'm a man. something ballerina or something, and it's got you know you you feel it's like about four singles off that album okay. that you would know. Yeah, but their first what four or five albums were like double albums. They were an amazing band too. So yeah, their their early stuff is really good. Yeah, yeah. No, oh come big, on, the, the, the indie stuff was great. Well, you kidding me? Come on, yeah. the drum machines, yeah. that re uh, re recording yeah. of twenty five or six to four with the drum machines. I, oh, oh, I, did they really? <laughs> yeah, they oh, redid I it. I don't want to know. I don't want. And know. instead of going do 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 do, it went. <laughs> it was all like the the eighties electronic yeah. sound, you know. Yeah, yeah. It sounded like something from Miami Vice, you know. <laughs> One thing about eighties production, and even I mean, Phil Collins did a fair amount of that though. But I'm gonna use Def Leppard as an example. That that snare drum sound, it sounds like you're dropping a thousand pounds of glass off a building. Yeah. It's like yeah. A, a drum doesn't sound like that, you know. And But who do you who do you blame for that? Mutt Lang, because listen Lang, to all yeah. his productions. Uh what was his wife? What was her name? The country singer? Uh, um uh, Shania Twain. Her her stuff, it sounded like Def Leppard if you listen to the backing tracks. Yeah, you know? yeah. Plastic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, plastic, yeah. Like it's a steroid over the you know, we have technology, let's use it, you know. Yeah. I thought there's a bit of a wag the dog with that lately. Lately too, I mean, we we we've been I've been going off on like some aspects of recording now, at least for home recording, where I think people are more obsessed with this synchronized time than they are with getting a good performance or a performance that's has a bit of a naturalness to it. I heard uh, "Talk of the Town" by the Replacements. I'm the Replacements, the Pretenders uh, today. <laughs> I caught <laughs> the Pretenders are a much better band, by the way. <laughs> um, but I said it's not it's, it's probably imperfect if you put a metronome but it sounds so good it's such a great song and it's such a great time and feel um, yeah I guess I'm watching nostalgic anyway you know I was watching something the other day speaking of the pretenders uh, I was watching uh, I got this thing on who owns these guitars from uh, you know who owns I got to thinking who owns that Jimi Hendrix guitar who owns Peter Green's uh, 59 Les Paul uh, hmm. and I was watching something the other day and this guy I'm not sure who he is I've really never heard of him he had James Honeyman Scott's guitar that he used on Talk of the Town sort of a Les Paul thing with like a, a custom metal front hmm. and he has that guitar and so wow. there was a 59 Les Paul that Peter Green used right Peter Green, of course, I think he played it on Black Magic Woman from uh, from uh, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Then he traded it to Gary Moore. And, of course, you all know who Gary Moore is, right? Yeah. I think he just gave it to him, didn't trade it. I think he just gave it to him. But Kirk Hammett from Metallica now owns that guitar. <sighs> that 59 Les Paul. Well, he'll take care of it, at least. You know. Doesn't yeah. David Gilmore have the first strat? to roll off the line. I didn't heard he, he did. He may have sold it. Did he sell his collection? Yeah, he had a massive auction, which I knew he was serious about retirement. He uh, auctioned off almost all his guitars. All the money went to charity. And I think that Strat was in it, but 
when I was reading about their new song, he kept his Telecaster, which he's had since uh, I think the sixties. So he kept one of them. Thank God. Oh, I'm sure um, he kept a couple of them. I'm sure he yeah. still has some Stratocasters and. Uh... Yeah. But I lose right. I heard. I always heard that he had like 1954, you know, 0001 Stratocaster. Yeah, I heard that too, yeah. I think it was two. I think he had number two because number one, I think Fender has it. Oh, I could Leo be wrong. Fender, uh, yeah. Yeah. So So anyway, Jimi Hendrix had this guitar that he played at a festival. And um, he also played at the Isle of Furman. And Paul Allen, who was the co-founder of Microsoft, bought that guitar. Mm-hmm. Well, but did he play the Plumpton Festival? <laughs> I don't know. Twelve napkins. <clears throat> no, no, it was seven, seven, uh, seven paper hankies. The dance of the seven paper hankies. I just keep thinking of Howard Stern asking, ask, ask napkin Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Lou, can I talk about a couple of drummers? Please, I love drummers. I got well. First <clears throat> of all, I got a problem. You know, I have a problem with this guy, Bernard Purdy. Really? Well, now, but I have to say, I mean, he, the guy's an amazing drummer, but he claims to have been on some Beatle recordings. He's right? an, well, here's I did some research on that. He claims and, you know, he's he may have passed away. He he was he was older than them. And he says uh, in, a, he, in an interview, I think it was back in the 80s or 90s, he goes. Uh, There's four drummers on the Beatle records and none of them are Ringo. And it's complete bullshit, of course. But what happened was he did play on some Beatle records, but they were when Pete Best was in the band. Pete Best was such a horrible drummer hmm. that they brought in Bernard Purdy. To, to This is when the Beatles were recording it, like with Tony Sheridan or, you know, those kind of things. Okay. So there, and I did the research on it and there they had two versions and you could tell the version with Pete Best and you could tell the version where Bernard Purdy came in and, you know, made the song happen. It kept the song together. So, yeah, Bernard Purdy didn't replace Ringo on anything. He replaced Pete Best huh. on, on Beatles you know, songs. I got, oh, a, okay. I got a slight connection with Bernard Purdy. Not, you know, I met him when I was working at CPI in Hillsdale. He now, did. Mark, CPI yeah. was Cassette Productions Incorporated? Yep. Okay, so you you worked at a facility that with the duplicated cassettes or uh, music on the cassette form. Yep, and I was the audio mastering engineer. So if anything sounded horrible coming out of there, yeah, it was me. All right. Did did, um, we got a lot of stuff from uh, a certain recording studio in Westwood? A lot of stuff. But anyway, (laughs) he had a band called the Hudson River Rats for a while, and he had us make CDs. And he came in, and he was he was all. He was very uh, show. He walked in and it was almost like he walked into master with me. And I was like, I heard a little bit of where he's been. So I was like, Mr. Purdy, but he was ready to like, right, right away. He's talking about what he's done. You didn't not let's get to business and master this thing. It's like, I played for Steely Dan. I played for, (laughs) he was quite a character, but he gave me a pair of drumsticks with his autograph on it. And, uh, I don't know what I did with them, Lou. If I find them, I'm sending them to you. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. Um, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure he had a lot of people. People like that have a lot of stories to tell. Yeah. You yeah, know, fabulous drummer. I'm just saying that like, oh, yeah. he's missing. He He's played on so many things. He didn't know whether Ringo, he didn't know yeah. it was Ringo wasn't the drummer. It was Pete Best who was the drummer that needed fixing. 
Yeah. That's yeah. Look. Well, I think it's weird that even back then he was available for that. So I guess that's going back to 1960. That's like 62. 62. Yeah. And he was yeah. in England. Yeah. So that, that, that's, you know, so he was, yeah. But, you know, he's responsible now. He's very influential as far as technique uh, for the, the that shuffle beat, which is, you mm-hmm. know, it, when you do it right, it's on, um, you know, Rosanna. Yep. Um, there's a Rosanna shuffle. Um, there's Fool in the Rain by Led Zeppelin. Um, Great uh, trumpet. Jeff, Jeff Porcaro took parts of the, uh, the Purdy shuffle and, and Bonhams for, um, it's, it's Rosanna, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also he did on some silly dance songs and, um, then he also played on the curly shuffle. <laughs> I've seen I've seen All Jeff right. Picard interviewed. He, he that joke bomb, man. That was a bomb. I'm dying out here, man. Come on. <laughs> that was that was professional show business comedy, man. Come on. Oh, I saw I saw, <laughs> I saw Jeff Picard interviewed, and he uh, he said outright, he goes, "I use the Purdy shuffle oh, for wow. that Steely Dan song." Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, Bernard Purdy was talking to me about it, and he played it with those drumsticks on my desk. He was going, and I got to see it firsthand. Now, I'm 24 years old, and I'm like, I know what he's doing is great, but I wish I was a little older to really appreciate it and stay in touch with the guy, you know? Yeah. I still have that CD laying around. It was him and a bunch of other seasoned uh, session guys that just got a band together for fun. It was great music. Wow. Let me throw uh, another drummer, you, if I may. Wait, wait. Do, do you know what Bernard Purdy's nickname is? Douchebag. No. <laughs> no, come on, man. No. Come on. <laughs> hey, Bernard, how can you play that shuffle on the Beatles song, you know? Um, his, nick, his nickname is Pretty. Bernard Pretty Purdy. <laughs> Ladies love Pretty Purdy. <laughs> Lou, I'm curious about what attract, like, you know, you, you know, we all love drummers. You know, I, I get I, I drift towards Ringo and things like that. But you went to Neil Peart. And I'm curious as to when you were a kid, what brought you over to Neil Peart? Was it just the way he looked? Was it the, the music? Was it the way he played? What was it? It's what I realized that I look like him. <laughs> you there you go. <laughs> and you, Lou, you talk like him, too. And you Are laugh you? like him. I'm telling you. That's, that's weird. Well, I haven't studied. That's weird. Yeah, um, I'm telling you. Well, I, actually, as far as his influence, he came along when I was been playing for you know, quite a few years. But, you know, going back as a little kid, I mean, there was the Beatles and all that radio stuff I heard, you know, and just liking rhythm. Um, there's certain things I, I guess going back as a kid, I always liked a certain sound of something um, mm-hmm. like the Beatles. I, I'll say probably something that stuck out early, like was Ticket to Ride. It's not about Neil Peart, but it's just saying like the things that grab you. Um, so, yeah. The, just the sound of Ticket to Ride as a whole and the drumming grabbed me as a kid. I'm like, what? That's just, that's just fantastic. I heard it the other day. That song still sounds fresh and amazing. It really, I mean, maybe like I said it's a generational thing. Someone 30 years younger than me may say, well, I don't get it. But I don't know. But some someone that age will get it. That's um, amazing you said that. Did you see the video I sent you guys today? I've seen it before. But I haven't watched it. But I, I did see where he, you know, he, he explains what, what he did there. And yeah, so that, that, with that, uh, Dave... Um... Dave Navarro. No. no, no. Dave from the Eurythmics. <laughs> Dave Stewart. Evans. Dave Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Evans. So, so Dave, Dave. Down about Neil Peart. Why, yeah. why Neil Peart okay. for you? So why? It got, got to a point when I've been playing for a few years where, you know, I wanted to progress. I wanted to, you know, see what how good a player I could, I could become, I guess. And, you know, a lot of that music and progressive rock is about technique. You've got to have some kind of technique in order to 
you know, to pull that kind of stuff off. You know, it's, it's very complicated. And I never liked overly complicated rock, but there was something about Rush when I'd seen 2112, uh, those videos on Don Kirsten's rock concert and all those, those late night rock shows. And I was just like, it was daunting because I'm like, wow, it's a, it's a huge drum kit. How the hell is he doing that? And how are they doing that? And that's too complicated for me, you know. <clears throat> but then I got to a point where I, I wanted to learn to play better. And I heard Spirit of the Radio, Tom Sawyer, songs like that were progressive. But there was a pop edge where you could, I could catch on to the rhythm. Especially mm-hmm. that song. I really like that song. Yeah. And I don't think they did. They didn't dumb themselves down to do that. They just that band just grew and evolved and, and just never did too much of the same thing. It's amazing. And yeah. like we talk about now, like they were always cool as, I, as far as I'm concerned. It just didn't <clears throat> become apparent until, you know, tragedy, until, you know, the inevitability of life happens, you know, yeah. all things, all things must pass. Yeah. But I had a friend, a guy named Rob Litauer, a bass player, a terrific bass player. And, you know, once the band I was in kind of, broke up it was a band with my, my, my brothers so it came down to two brothers <laughs> so we have the friend played bass rob litauer and he was a, a prog head like metal like rush and you know we played some songs i listened to some albums and so we ended up playing some of their material and but what i always liked about him i liked his sound I, as far as his drum solos go i've heard of i think other drummers maybe do a more technically proficient solo although neil was not lacking in a technique but it was his tonal the tonal quality of his drum set and the way he incorporated different sounds and mm. different drums into that kit that just intrigued me and still does. And he was just a fun drummer to watch. If you yeah. look at him, he looks serious. He does not open his mouth. He breathes through his nose the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I do the same thing kind of like as, you know, even as an asthmatic, I think I have good wind for a drummer where I've learned to breathe where I'll never get out of breath. You know, I've, I've learned to do it where there were times, you know, if you stop breathing when you're playing drums, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, having seen them live a couple of times too, and just being impressed, but three guys pulled that shit off, man. It was just, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, and for lack of nothing. But um, yeah. I, I also like the fact that he, he was, you know, he was a lyricist. You know, he wasn't just the drummer. Uh, one of my issues as a musician is that I always feel, and to some extent that, you know, the drummer is like the employee of the band. Um, you know, someone says, you're playing too fast. You know, I might not be playing too fast. <laughs> you may, you may not be riding, you know, I'm, I'm, it's the you're, you're in the driver's seat, so it, it's a little arrogant of sorts, but it's definitely something where you've got to follow your drummer. Kind of like, kind of like in that thing you do. Remember, like, no, it's too fast. You're too fast, yeah. guy, right? And and that made the song that he yeah. kicked it up a notch, right? Yeah, well, it's you know, it's finding. I I, I believe that most songs have a natural voice. You can alter it. Um, and some of the things I do here, you know, my little spiritual center gig. I remember saying one time, I said, <clears throat> excuse me. That's not the natural feel of that song. We can play it a lot slower to do it, but that's not its natural feel in and of itself. Um, but I think, you know, going back to Neil, the fact that, you know, he, he was a, a very thoughtful lyricist. He's a very thinking man. He's a very literate man, a well-read guy and a very yeah. enigmatic guy. But he, I think it's, he, but a humble man. I mean, it had to be humility. Uh, the yeah. fact that he just goes, I just wanted to be a guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, in spite of that fame, in spite of that talent, and in his later years, you know, there's pictures of him on his road travels where he's sitting in a diner with a baseball hat, reading a book, like eating eggs, yeah. you know. Right. And he didn't, he never liked to do the meet and greets and that, you know, that wasn't him. And no. He, and he, I see in so many documentaries, he's like, it's nothing, it's nothing, I, I, you know, I'm not a bad guy. I just, that's not me. I no. can't walk up to total strangers and say, how you doing? And let's, you know, that's not him. That was, I, I admire that. Yeah. yeah. 
if I, I, I could, I if, I, if I could say from a non-drummer point of view, you know, I was a prog head growing up, metal fan too. Neil Peart was the drummer for me at a, 10 years old. I was just phenomenal, you know? And when I started to learn and get into jazz and I learned that Neil was just as provision of a jazz player, he did that tribute album to what was it? Louis Belson, Lou? Um, no. Krupa. Was it Krupa? Krupa. Yeah. And I started when I heard that album, because as my big introduction to jazz was Pat Metheny. So I started to understand jazz drumming. Then when I back went back and listened to like even the solos from the seventies when he was different than like the eighties, he had a jazz sound on a lot of those solos. He was behind the beat when he was doing his solos, you know? Hmm. And that's what amazed me. It's like, he wasn't regimented like some of these prog drummers. He was a astounding drummer. And then he's the only drummer that I bought two of his uh, instructional videos wow. uh, where he, they Russell put out an album and he would basically play each song from the album with a drum cam and then describe the song. I watch him. I can't stop watching him. And I'm not a drummer. I don't know what he's doing, but I'm just watching him. Like he is just, he's a scientist, the drummers. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How you guys feel about this? Because um, interesting to me is, you know, uh, you know, Keith Moon died and they brought in Kenny Jones and they brought in other drummers and this and same thing with Led Zeppelin. They brought in uh, who who was John Bonham's kid or, you know, Zach Starkey and all these guys. But what about Rush? It Like, say, if they decided to ever go out again as Rush, can any drummer fill in his shoes? Yeah, I don't I don't think they would ever call themselves Rush. No, they wouldn't. But, but uh, you get my point, though. Can yeah. Can anybody fill his shoes? Uh, someone could duplicate. They mentioned Mike Portnoy uh, mm -hmm. would be the most obvious choice to replace him. Probably some dream, dream theater. Um, More but... familiar with him. Oh yeah. Actually, he he quit Dream Theater and he's on his own. But oh. he could play it, but it wouldn't be Neil Peart. You no, know, and I love Mike Portnoy. He's a great drummer, but it wouldn't be Neil Peart. But there's still millions upon millions of fans who would still like to see Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson get out there again. Yeah, well, I think they should get one of those really creepy little, like, eight-year-old kids that can play Rush songs and go. <laughs> no, they should get the singer from Journey, Arnold Pinnell. He can play drums, too. Yeah. Dude, that's some, some four-year-old kid, but it'd just be totally eerie, you know? <laughs> no, I can say as a drummer, I can pull off Limelight. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is a great song. song it really is. Oh, and, man. Uh, and rhythmically, um, the drums on it, I love the drumming on it. I love his yeah. sound. Um, Me too. Yeah. Even now, when he went pop in the '80s too, I said, "Okay, he jumped on the the electronic thing." And as inspiration, you know, it's funny. Um, he got an Electric Simmons kit in '83. Like, I got one too. Mm -hmm. um, so at, at my at my most extravagant, I had let's see, you know, I, I never did double bass because my legs are too short, and they didn't have those double pedals back then. Um, but <laughs> I had I had like you know the five piece kit with two side toms. I had three roto toms to the left of me. And I had the, the Simmons kit off to the right interspersed it. So I took it apart somehow. <laughs> cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was fun. I was, it, was, it was a barrel of monkeys to play. You get all day back there. But, hey, um, Lou. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the 80s, that was the <laughs> kill me now. That's my favorite rush period. Hold your fire, power yeah. window. Oh, my God. And I think yeah. Neil Peart had more energy. On I have a DVD of the Hold Your Fire tour, and I saw him on that tour. I, I'm like, I know he doesn't do drugs, but it's like the guy was so wired every night. He played his, that was like the tour where he, I think he, I don't know. I don't know how he did it every night. Yeah. He was just on fire. 
No, he, he's, he was strong, you know, you could say he, he was he was a big guy in a lot of ways. But um, as he got older, you know, I could tell he was a powerful guy. And he, you need that kind of stamina to do that, you know, to go yeah. on into your 60s, you know. And I got to say, that's my goal. You know, I'm, I'm 60 um, and I'm seeing uh, drummers in 10 years, you know, like, you know, this is, I, I saw one guy at the guitar bar. I thought he had one leg because his whole right leg was taped up. I was like, how's he doing the bass drum? You know, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Um, but you know, the thing is, is, you know, I've, I've gotten some tendonitis issues and that was one of the reasons why Neil retired, but he also yeah. spent his whole adult life playing some badass kick out complicated yet really a, in their own way, accessible music. I think, I think Rush were not as alienating as a lot of people sound or think they were, um, right. it, it, maybe it was Getty's unique voice, which I liked, I gotta say, I liked it. Yeah. You love them or hate them because when I run into Rush haters, they all say the same thing. Can't stand the singer. Yeah. You know, that's the one key. And I'm like, I love this voice. I, I think it's great. <laughs> I, I listened off Signals. I listened to the song Losing It the other day. Oh, I love and that. It's such a beautiful song. Perry, it's it's the song about um, he parallels like a ballerina at the top of her form. Hemingway, when he couldn't write anymore, when he realized it was all behind them. At, you know, it's you got to handle that peak and you got to handle the way down. And it's a metaphor for, you know, like I said, you know, Sinatra couldn't really sing at one point. And how do you handle that? The, yeah. You know, the melancholy after that. And Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and lyric wise, when they put out the uh, Roll the Bones and the Presto albums, when Neil Peart moved into uh, issues of teen suicide, like on The Pass, The Pass is one of the best songs ever written. Don't do it. That that line, you know, it's like yeah. those two albums, he got very, he's, he was writing about love he was writing about a lot about kids and it was like yeah. he went from the old lyric style to the new lyric style and he, he came into it gracefully and he was fantastic with it and a, a man who lost the daughter tra his only child tragically you know and his wife at, yeah. yeah at the time his only child he had two daughters that have survived him i think yeah um, yeah but uh yeah he would like i never knew his nickname was the professor but i think that's so apt Perfect. And and Perry, you mentioned like you're not a fan of sorts, but you like watching those documentaries because you like you like them. You like listening to them. I respect the hell out of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Oh, oh, because they, they were very self-contained. Yeah. And they were they, they loved each other. They were they were friends. They were like brothers. And... I never had a rush album, never will, but like, you know, I, I of course on my when I where I listen to music on my phone, I have a couple of rush songs. I have one or two or three of them. One of them's a Neil Young cover. Oh, that's that covers album they did. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. on that album too. <clears throat> yeah. summertime blues. It's rock riffs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which shows that you know they, they they didn't they had a sense of humor. You know the music was serious, but um, you know Anil he, he had his writing of sorts. It could be kind of a technocratic, I guess, or whatever. But you know he also wrote us some human themes. Perry, if you listen to the song "Losing It," um, it it's beautiful. It, I mean, it's 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 got you know those jams. It's got a great guitar solo. Um, yeah, and he's a, he's one of the most underrated guitar players ever. Alex Lifeson. Yes, he should, he should be on everyone's top ten list of a great rock and roll guitar. Player. He he's one of these guitar players that everyone can claim to play a Rush song, but they're never going to play it like like uh, Alex. Hell no. Like, you can play subdivisions. <laughs> you can sit there and do those chords, but you're not going to do it like Alex. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what makes them unique, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we, what? We've, we've hit an hour already. Hey, you guys have any more subjects randomly? That you're <clears throat> yeah, I got, I, there's, there's I've got a couple, couple more as well. <clears throat> got one more, so I'll wait for you guys. Okay. Um, now, in the realm of English prog rock, 
I always think of Spinal Tap. Um, I was wondering, like, they, 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 like it sounded like the uh, the Caravan Band with those album titles <laughs> could have been an inspiration for Spinal Tap. But Twin I was reading, Peaks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I was reading where um, uh, Spinal Tap. There, there was a um, a writer, uh, J.D. Considine, rock critic. Yeah. And where I, he was the guy that reviewed GTR and said. His review was SHT. <laughs> I, I thought it might have been Robert Christgau, but it's J.D. Considine. But he got to review a Quiet Riot's fourth album that was called Condition Critical, and his review was Condition Terminal. <laughs> Spot on for that album. <laughs> so, that album was a piece of shit. <laughs> he's got two Pulitzer Prize winning, very short, <laughs> no-brainer no record reviews. You know, come on, you phone that shit in, man. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> um, also, I, I go into. I was mentioning. I was thinking that I said before that there was a particular song from the early '60s that I said paved the way for the Beatles. Um, one was I think if, I, I would said if Buddy Holly had lived, I don't think the Beatles might might have happened. And that's kind of a weird comment to make. Um, but well, I thought, that's true, but anyway, I get well, the no, yeah. yeah, well, there, there was a, a in 63, there was a, a kind of a dearth of American bands that were <clears throat> that were making the waves. There's a lot of you know, those girl groups, but these were all provided by singer, like songwriters and stuff. Right. Didn't rock, rock got very soft. It did. Right? But but I, I was thinking that um, they read that things like the Kennedy assassination, the mood of the country helped pave the way for the Beatles. But in 1963, there was some amazing American rock going on. It was a lot of the girl group stuff, but it, I mean, it was a lot of American-made music, Motown. So there was a whole bunch of stuff that I, I'd forgotten about. Um, but there was also some stuff that was, you know, I, I thought was kind of schmaltz, like, you know, the Bobby Rydell stuff, the Bobby V. Calls a night, has a thousand eyes, you know. Who do you think you are, Frankie Valley or something? <laughs> They're different. Don't mess with the Italo rock stars. <laughs> I mean, come on, man! They wrote all the best songs in rock. But th there was one song in particular that I said this this paved the way for the Beatles, and as it turns out, it, it's the number one song of 1963, and it's the song "Sugar Shack." You know the one talking that at the Sugar Shack. Recording the Beatles were recording since '62. What's that? The Beatles were making records since '62. Yeah, but the, the Beatles hit number one in England in '63. I'm, I'm talking like British invasion. <laughs> um, but that was the number one song. I, I say, well, I said, I always, I said that, that's the song that made the Beatles um, um, happen, you know. But as it turns out, that was the last American band to actually chart in the U.S. before Beatlemania. So, really? So, so it's kind of true in a way. But it's, I, I heard the song the other day on the radio, and I said, it's got fuzz bass on it. I'm like, that's really, I never noticed that before. But the band was called Jimmy Gilmer. Oh, wait a minute. No notes, the notes. Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. Um, they recorded that song, Sugar Shack, at Norman Petty's studio. Norman Petty plays that keyboard part on it. And um, actually, Norman Petty ended up using the Fireballs for um, the stuff he did. He overdubbed with Buddy Holly. So a lot of a lot of Buddy Holly's unfinished stuff that was not the crickets has the fireballs balls behind it. <laughs> Mark, was that you? Nope. Hey. That's <laughs> the guy that likes to get us in trouble. You know that. Gilmer and the fireballs. <laughs> yeah, did, did, did you hear the fuzz bass? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Sugar Shack. Yep. We're gonna drink a little coffee, talk a little trash. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. Yep. Um, yeah, but it was uh, now that, that keyboard is a uh, 
a Hammond Solovox Model J, which is on, which is in Norman Pettier's. Uh, the, he still has the studio. It's like a museum now of sorts, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, it was recorded at Cloven uh, at Norman Petty Studios in Clovis, New Mexico. In Clovis, yeah, yeah, yep. pretty cool. And and Sugar Shack hit number one. It, it was on the Billboard Hot 100 for five weeks. Yeah, it, it was the number one song of 1963. Yeah, and now Cashbox too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was my little. That was my little trivial. Wow. All right, Lou. Lou, I got something for you here. All right. Okay. You're not going to make me look stupid on the show. All right. <laughs> Chicago <laughs> too. Chicago too had "Make Me Smile," "Color My World," okay, and "25 or 6 to 4." Oh wow! So okay, it's huge. A great yeah. album. Yeah. And I'm "Make sorry. Me Smile" and "Color My World" were in the Ballad for a Girl in Buchanan, which was a sweet. And uh, just they, they were actually. Steve Wilson probably liked them because in their own weird way, you could label them progressive because who the hell else was doing that stuff? Like, well, let me let me tell you, I had the 45 when I was a kid of Make Me Smile. It was on Columbia Records, I believe. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, you're right. I remember it had that like red label or that orange label. And yeah. what got me about that song was the drumming. I was blown away by the drumming on that song. Make Me Smile. The Danny Seraphine, a jazzy progressive type of drummer. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And Terry Kath did not write 25 or 6 to 4. The other guy wrote that. Uh, Robert Lamb. Robert Lamb. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Like Terry Kath just ripped it on that. And it's funny because um, when the 80s came, I think Chicago fired Danny Seraphine. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, David Foster had a hand in that. <laughs> what, what's that? Danny, uh, David, David Foster, Foster had a hand in that. <laughs> yeah, because James Guertio was their producer uh, in the earlier days. Yeah. Yep. Also worked with the Four Seasons, I believe. I guess after Bob Crew. Now, well, I, I'm going to do, maybe next time or in the future, I'm going to do a little section on the Italo Rock, because that is a real, it's a real thing. It's in their Encyclopedia uh, Rolling Stone, Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll. Dion DiMucci. In fact, um, Bobby Rydell was really, uh, I think he was really Italian. Bobby V, no, actually, Bobby Rydell was Finnish and like Norwegian. And, but like there, Frankie Avalon, they were, he was Italian. Um, Fabian was Italian. Bobby V, they were like Venucci and stuff like that. So, how many, how many wanted to be Italian and acted Italian? Though? Everybody. Like, like my father <laughs> used to say, there's two kinds of people Italians and those who want to be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I think I we should know. get Tom. I think Tom's on that too. You know? I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, if we do an Italo rock, we got to have Tom on. I mean, <laughs> all right. So who wants to do Italo rock next week? We'll go Italo rock. All right, the rascals. Let me throw. Let me. Uh, I've been listening. Uh, I was talking to Mark the other day, and I said I've been listening to some old those Rolling Stones 45s from the 60s. I let you know. I I love those old Rolling Stones 45. Satisfaction. Yeah. Get off my cloud. Spend the night together. Nineteenth nervous breakdown. My personal favorite, Rolling Stones forty five. Tainted black. Yep. And I noticed something interesting about it, which it finally hit me after listening to like the like. There's no guitar solos on those songs. Mm. Mm. There's yeah. no guitar solos now on on the Beatles songs. There were usually guitar solos by George. Good but. Point. But there were none on these old, they were just pop songs, just created pop songs. No guitar solos on any of those songs. Just riffs. Just riffs, yeah. yeah. 
Yep. That, I For found sure. that really interesting. Now, Brian, funny, Jones just, Brian Jones wanted to write a song, and like Paint It Black, that's a sublime song, that melody line. Well, is, these were Jagger Richards. These were Jagger Richards songs, mostly. Oh, okay. I don't think Brian Jones ever actually wrote a song. Yeah, I thought he had a hand in a lot of those early singles. I'm, I'm wrong? Well, you know, I, I, every now and again, I find, uh, you know, I find they like they isolate Brian Jones guitar. I'm like, yeah, he was pretty, he was pretty nifty. Like on their Chief Nervous Breakdown, if you hear him isolated, it's like, wow, you know, it's, it's pretty good. But, but what I found interesting was, you know, I know not every Beatles song in the early days, like She Loves You, doesn't have a guitar solo. Right. But other ones did have guitar solos. Yeah. Can't Buy Me Love has a guitar solo. Yeah. You know, those Beatles songs, you know, they had a lead guitar player. They had two guitar players. The Stones had two guitar players. But in these early days, they really, until really Mick Taylor came in, they really didn't have guitar solos. That, that, that's a good point. Maybe yeah. a little maybe a little passage here and there, but nothing you'd say is like a solo, a four-bar right. solo. Right, right. Um, like breakdown. They go to that little thing, but it's not a guitar solo. Right. It's just like the intro riff again. Just, just like Satisfaction. It's a riff. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I heard the Beatles' Dr. Robert today. Yeah. And no guitar solo, but I heard Lennon's rhythm, boom, down, 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 yep. down. And George expertly, as the song builds, George just adds a little bit here and there, but there's no guitar solo. But the way they did it, I said, that's how it influenced the birds and REM and everybody else. And the Stones, too, probably. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that's, uh, so I just found that interesting that uh, the, the comparison to the Beatles 45s from those days. And like, yeah, the Beatles had some guitar solos, but the Stones had none yeah. on, these, on these songs. I, found, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And I like the low fidelity of these things too because i mean at emi they had the best of everything they had george martin they, they everything sounded crisp but everyone else the kinks and the stones they sounded low more low fidelity they, they had a recorded trident or something whatever yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but also now bear in mind that a lot of those other studios had more advanced technology when abbey road didn't true yeah yeah, and but it also depends on who's behind the board too. And, uh, yeah, right. I mean, that's right. You know, I mean, the Who had you know like Keith Lambert and these guys. Like they didn't really know how to produce records, but they were producing the records. Yeah, yeah. There, there were there were managers that you know. Right. Probably there's an engineer behind the board, and well, who produced the Stones? Was it Andrew Lou Goldham or something like that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, for a certain. Uh, and of course, the thing like most of these, a lot of those songs are owned by, uh, you know, Alan Klein, uh, Abco. Yeah, Abco, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny from a sound perspective, right? So you had stuff in the '60s recorded. It's tried in studios or whatever. They sound good. Then you go into the '70s, like ten years later, right? And you listen to Queen too. Sounds like crap. That was, you know, like. It's, it's all about the guy behind the desk, because when Queen recorded their first few albums, they had much better equipment. But the producer, it was, um, oh, Lou, you could help me. The guy that did Candy O, Roy Thomas Baker. Roy Thomas Baker. to overdo the drums. But it's all about the guy behind the desk. You can't always blame the studio. You can't blame the equipment. It's yeah, the that's right. Yeah. I mean, if the Beatles can record a great-sounding great album in 12 hours in a studio, it can be done. But it depends whose ears got whose ears are on it. I heard, actually, I heard an old Queen song. I don't even know the name of it because I never heard of it. And uh, the drum, I, di I didn't like the sound of it. The drums, they were just overloaded, but it just, it was more of a metal type sound. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's it. It's, it's funny. I can, I can play a Beatles album. I can play help. That's, that's one of my favorites, right? I can play that really loud. No ear fatigue. If I try to play queen two, which I love music wise, I can't turn it loud because it just, it's fatiguing, you know? And I'm like, yeah. get it down. Ugh, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think you have to do a lot of cocaine and then listen to it. Well, that's the long run. If you can listen to Hotel California, the long run, <laughs> you gotta do like a ton of cocaine because then it'll sound really bright, you know? <laughs> and also, this is this I think is the worst case of overcompression. You tell me, Steely Dan's Hey 19. The bass drum, <laughs> when you hear the the bass drum is so damn loud. The, the snare drum is white noise, but the bass drum is like, wait, turn it down. It's a great <laughs> What song, album is that off of? Gaucho. See now, and that's my favorite Steely Dan album, and they spent really? more time on that album, I think, than any other album. It's funny. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know a whole lot of songs on it. Is, is um the DIY is Fagin solo, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, I didn't that particular song. I just every time I've heard it recently, and the, the bass drum, it, it's just it's blowing my speakers out. It's so loud. I think it's, yeah, it's well, the, the that's perfection anything. for you. You know what? It's, it was. Coke. <laughs> It was Bernard Bernard Purdy played on it. That's why. That's right. <laughs> he wasn't just bag. hitting. He wasn't hitting the bass drum of the pedal. He was hitting the bass drum of the stick. You know. <laughs> oh, you know, hey, Luke, can I can, can I throw something in there? Remember, I was talking a week or so ago about this band. They were really big in the '90s, and then they faded away, and they went back. And the group was Soul Asylum. Yeah. And they um, they were big. You yeah. run away, run away, run, runaway train, runaway train. Yeah, and I mean it was it was overkill, but they were big, they were huge, and now they're still together. Well, of course, the original guitar player left, and the bass player uh, died. Bass player died, so they have they have you know they so I think Dave Perner is really the only original guy. But anyway, they're they're still there. Of course, they don't play the, the places they used to play. They play like theaters now. And they're yeah. going on tour in 2022. But the thing is, from where, you know, it's very fickle. It's very fickle when they were, I mean, that was, you know, 25, almost 30 years ago. Yeah. That, you know, they had that big hit. That, that record was almost the last gasp because I think at that point, you know, they've been slugging it out for years. And I think they were probably saying, you know, this is probably it. And sure enough, they land a couple of songs on the radio. I, yeah. it, it's a good song to me. It it, it bumps me out. It, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not a I'm not a big fan of like over melancholy music. I guess you know. I, but, I always uh, felt like I always felt like they were trying to be like they were trying to be the new replacements. Did you ever feel like that with them? Maybe. I, yeah. I yeah. That. What? Because yeah. of the Minneapolis connection. Well, that, that also that that kind of underdog, their underdoggy thing, you know. Yeah, and they they oh we're drunk and they, they, sure, they put that you know, in I'm it. sure the big record company wanted that video. They couldn't <clears> get that video, and that helped and all that. Yeah, but the thing is, so so they they have they have a new album coming out, and they went to some site called Pledge Music, and there's a lot of sites out there like Patreon and things like that where they they tried to get funding to record the new album. Yeah, so they're at that point from where they were to going on the internet to say, can you send us money so we can record an album? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of bands are forced to do that now because nobody buys records anymore. I do, yeah. we do, but it's a shame. Most people listen on Spotify, well, they'll get a couple pennies or any other streaming service, but 
um, Jethro Tull, Ian Anderson wanted to publish a Jethro Tull book, uh, just a picture book of all the years. The Pony Up 50 Bucks, I did. So I got my name in the book. They have like, they at the end of the book, they have all the people that, that pledge. But that's what people are, like bands of all stripes are re- reduced to doing that now. And it's a shame. It yeah, really yeah. They have these online sites where you can finance your art. You but can- on the other hand, if if a record label doesn't give the money, they kind of can't be told what to do. That's right. So the, yeah. So it's kind of a good thing, you know? And and you don't have to pay your record company back for studio time and expenses. Or, and or for like paying that. for the video. Yeah. 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 And uh, there's one other thing I want to talk about was The Clash. The Clash signed a horrible record deal with CBS Records when they signed. <laughs> Joe Stromer said it was child abuse. He, they signed a 10-album, 10 10-year 10 deal for a hundred thousand dollar advance that they got Ooh. from CBS, and that's how we got Sandinista three record set. Ten albums in ten years, it was almost impossible to do. Yeah. And they thought, but they thought that um, if they did a three record set with Sandinista, they thought that that would count as three records to get yeah. them out of the deal, and that wasn't the deal, really. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought they counted. Oh, shit. So, so they recorded like six studio albums. Of course, the last one was called "Cut the Crap," and it was so. Then they compiled two more. Then there were two live albums or something. So that made like the ten album deal. So you know they had to fulfill that, but because they were poor, they were they had nothing. So they when the Clash they they had only played like twenty five gigs, and then CBS came calling because they were signing bands. The record companies were signing bands like crazy in England at that point. So they got a hundred thousand dollar advance. I and mean, can you imagine a hundred grand to four guys who have nothing, right, on a floor? Yeah. 25,000 a piece. 25,000 pounds a piece. Yeah, Yeah, whatever it was, yeah. But 10 albums in 10 years. And when you think about it, like, wow, that's a tough tough thing to complete, man, to fulfill. And for for a band to look ahead 10 years, too, you know. But I guess guess if at one point they look ahead to renegotiate or something. Who was the record label again? CBS. Okay. And everyone said they sold out. So they said, "Punk is dead. Punk died the day Clash the, the Clash signed with CBS, because there was that thing. Same thing with Green Day, you know. You, you know what though? I I never to help the punk scene. Real punk bands like the Sex Pistols, they didn't play music. I never considered the Clash punk. Like they were they they're good songwriters. So they they were in the punk scene. Like the Jam yeah. were considered punk. The Jam were not punk. They you were, know? they were not. Nope. Yeah. yeah. And they, uh, I never considered the class. The class, the class covered all kinds of music, from reggae dubs to all sorts of things. Look, I'm one of the few people that can listen to all six sides of Sandinista. I love that album. <laughs> it's, it's a great yeah, album. A lot of reggae dubs and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And Charlie Don't Surf. Yeah. Yeah. So. so anyone else have some random subjects they want to toss in there? I'm going to say one more thing. Lou brought up something about being on Facebook and people arguing about music. Yeah. Can we stop with, all right, so you'll get a post. So I'm, I'm in a bunch of forums, like for bands. So I'm in a Genesis forum. And someone always, once a week, puts up a stupid thing. The best Genesis album, tell me now. Right? So if I put in a response, I go, 
my opinion or I feel my favorite album is, but then you get these people, the best Genesis album is, and they'll argue with everybody. <laughs> and that's like, we were talking like we were talking like the other week about overrated artists, right? But we were quick to say to the listeners, you may like this stuff. Like, yeah. understand, music is like personal to <laughs> everybody. But man, Facebook is ruining music for me. And it shouldn't. That's like Facebook. The one thing I'm left with on Facebook is music. And I think I'm going to drop out because of that, too. Wow. I'm getting real tired of it. <laughs> Everybody's sword fighting over who is. Who has the best opinion? You know what I mean. It's like, oh. like you said, like I, I think this might be Rush's best album. You may not, but you know, and as and as fans, you shouldn't be fighting about it. No, you know, it's 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 not the point. The point is you're part of a community. So, so what's what's going on now is see, I'm a I my heart's with Roger Waters, but the, the Gilmore fans are starting to pop over to the Roger Waters uh, Facebook page and they're starting to like troll. And I'm like, leave it alone. You know, I like Roger. I like David Gilmore. I like it all. You know? well, if you're pro Roger Waters, you're anti Dave Gilmore, right? Yeah. Yeah. Head to head with him. And it's crazy. It's like, we all like Pink Floyd. So let's all get along. <laughs> There's a lot of contentiousness in the air. Yeah. You know, everyone's like I said, it's people trying to prove their point. More so than trying to hear your point or my point or Perry's point. It's just like, you know, it's just trying to prove someone wrong to prove yourself right. It's just, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't matter. You can like David Gilmore and you can like Roger Waters or, or whomever, you know. Nick Mason did solo albums. It's just, I, I don't want to get into that. You know, it's the same thing with that, that band site. I'm like, you know, a friend of mine got me into it. And at first I'm like, this is really cool. We're all, everyone's like talking, people are becoming friends. And then you see this some asshole pops up and you're like, Why it's always you? one. There's a, yeah. And when there's one, there's another and another, you know, then, then they can start crawling out of the anthill. You know, it's just, <laughs> I said, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I said, I'm here to discuss. I actually, I went to the administrators and wrote them an email saying, could you do something to like help quell this a little bit? It's just, people are starting to get insulting. And I mentioned like, you know, I said, one of the band members widow is on here. People telling stories about her husband. It's like, come on, stop, stop. Yeah, you know, that's you know. One of my one of my favorite replies is, "It's amazing that you can type so eloquently with one hand while the Twinkies in the other." I mean, that's basically <laughs> what they are. They sit there all day and they want to argue with people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my my thing on Facebook is I'm trying to. I, I don't I know nobody will see, but I try to like show like my opinion. Like I try to like I'm not gonna fight with anybody. It's music. No, don't fight over music, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. It's well stupid. good luck with that because people will fight over anything. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, next week we should let's talk politics, okay? Okay. And we all gotta get drunk before we talk politics. <laughs> Guys, I can't do it next week, sorry. <laughs> so who wants to give out our email address? I will. Before we say goodnight. We are the Music Roast Podcast at gmail.com. Well, all right. So uh, we're at 80. We're at 86 minutes already, guys. So uh, right. it was a good gig, man. Good show. That was good fun. show. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right. Good night, time. good night, Mark. Good night. Good night, Lou. Good night, Perry. Good night, John Boy. Thank you.